the perfect father and his problem kids. I'm not talking about your earthly family or your earthly father necessarily, but the perfect father and his problem kids. Last Sunday we began a brief look at the father's heart, your, your father's heart for you, your real father's heart for you. Earthly fathers, and we all have one or have had one, at, at its simplest, your earthly father was the means to get you here along with your biological mother. But the scripture will make it very clear that our earthly fathers are not necessarily our real father. Now I'm speaking this today knowing that there are a lot of earthly fathers in the room. But every earthly father there is in the room or who is listening to us this morning, a part of this with us this morning, every earthly father needs a father. Every dad needs a dad. If you don't believe that, you just try being one by yourself. It doesn't work. We are human. We are sinners by nature, by choice as men. And if we don't have somebody bigger than we are, purer than we are, stronger in the will than we are, we're toast morally and even physically and just about any other category you might attach to what a father needs to be. So the point this morning is not necessarily to lecture earthly fathers as much as it is to remind us whether we are male or female, older or younger, married or single, that we have, because of Jesus Christ, a real father, a real heavenly father. But to as many as received him, Jesus, John 1, 12, very clear, very clear, very clear. We're all creations of God, but we are not all children of God on planet Earth. There is a distinction between a creation and a child of God, a creation of God and child of God, and it's John 1, verse 12. But to as many as received Jesus, to these he gave the right to be called the children of God. That's why we have to tell folks about Jesus. That's why we need to pray for folks to come to know Jesus. That's why we need to look with some degree, I believe, of, of optimism about what's happening in our country as it can seem like more and more um, trouble and fear and even chaos to a degree engulfs us. God just has a way of allowing those kinds of things to press folks in the direction of knowing they need the Lord. 
They need the Lord. We need the Lord. We need Jesus. Not just another church building. Not just another preacher. Jesus. He's not still a baby. He's not still in Mary's arms. He's not still dying on a cross. You're not going to find any DNA in the tomb. He is alive. He is real. And he's in this room. And he's still the healer of broken hearts. He's still the mender of broken lives. He's, he's still got everything that he had when he walked this earth, plus the fact that he's been reclothed with all the glory that he had with the Father and the power that he had with the Father before he emptied himself and became a child born by Mary to this earth. He's alive. He's real. His name, his name is Jesus. And every Father needs Jesus, and every, every father and every mother and every human, every person who's listening to us this morning needs to know that we have a real Father by way of our relationship with Jesus Christ. The good, the good news is that the presence of Jesus who gives us access to the presence of the Father, the, the, the presence of Jesus has the ability to more than make up for the absence of an earthly father. Whether the earth, your earthly father is, is, has passed away and is in the presence of the Lord, um, your earthly father has not been a part of your life for a long time, you didn't grow up knowing your earthly father, the presence of Jesus, the reality of Jesus has the ability to more than compensate for the absence of an earthly father. The power that is ours in Jesus more than makes up for the weakness of an earthly father. The approval, the approval, the approval that is ours in Jesus more than makes up for the disapproval that we may have found or gotten for our earthly father. The acceptance that is ours in Jesus more than makes up for the rejection that we may have experienced from our earthly father. In the Gospel of John, at the end of that first chapter, on toward the end of it, the writer there says some things about the mission of Jesus when he came to this earth. And some things are very powerful and insightful as the writer laid them out. He said, he said Moses came to bring the law, the rules, the, 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 the way of, of, um, of finding acceptance with God in terms of, of how, you would, how you would behave and what needed to be done if you, if you didn't behave and you didn't do it right and what the, what the sacrificial system would be all about for the, getting your sins forgiven. The, the law came through Moses. The law came through Moses. And it had a, had a sternness to it. And it had, a, had, had very crisp corners to it. And, and there just was, seemed to be very little, very little slack. The law came through Moses. But then it says, but grace and truth came 
through Jesus Christ. It wasn't that Jesus came to contradict the law. It's just that the law, the rules, the regulations did not paint the full picture of the Father's heart for those he wanted to be his children. Jesus came to paint that picture in fuller detail and more wonderful colors. And then it will say that no man has seen God at any time in the fullness of who he is, but only Jesus, his son, has seen him in that way. And then it says in this amazing line about the mission of Jesus on this earth, Jesus explained him. Jesus explained the Father. We need look no farther than the recording of what Jesus said and did, how he reacted, who responded to him, who felt repulsed in their attitude toward him. Need look no farther than the life of Jesus. He came to explain the Father. There were many things wrong about God that Jesus encountered as he walked this earth and as, he, as especially he, he, he kept dealing with and being confronted by religious people. They knew the Bible. They knew the songs. They knew when to be in the religious ceremonies and the feasts and the fasts and so the festivals and so forth. But they had their image of who God as Father really is all wrong. And Jesus came to set the record straight. And I want to say to you, as, as we get ready to look back again into Luke chapter 15, here are three things about your heavenly Father's heart that are unshakable, that are intended for you and for me to know, not just in our minds, but to know and delight in in our hearts these three things. First, He's loyal to you. Secondly, he's strong. He's strong. He's strong in your behalf. And then the third thing is, he's kind. He's kind. You're not going to have to worry about waking up one morning and he's in a sour mood and cranky and bad humored. You're not going to have to worry about whether or not he's got the ability, the tenacity to stand up for you, to fight for you if need be, to resist opposition when you need help. He's strong and he's loyal. He's loyal. He's loyal. The scripture will, will use the word grace and truth will realize through Jesus Christ. Another way of translating that English word or the Greek word into the English for truth, instead of the word truth, you could put the word loyal. He's loyal. Grace delivered through Jesus, but his loyal heart. Folks, as I mentioned last week, there, there is no dagger on the face of the earth emotionally that pierces any deeper to the human soul than the dagger of disloyalty. Disloyalty. In, in particular, coming from a father who is supposed to represent God in our lives, and we find out all of a sudden that as a child that the 
this, this father has chosen someone else over us as a family. That he's gone. He has left. He's not there. Disloyalty. Jesus Christ came to express came to put it in strong, simple words, and by his example, he lived it out. God, your heavenly Father, is not disloyal to his child. He is loyal to you, and he is strong in his loyalty, and he is kind in his loyalty and his strength. Now, the passage that we'll look at this morning is one of those fascinating passages of Scripture because it's a setting in which Jesus finds himself in a mixed crowd. And the mixture is of the two moral opposites. Look with me, Luke chapter 15 and verse 1, one more time. This is one of those that we seem to keep coming back to. But I really believe, folks, there, there's, a, there's just a big chunk of Alamo City, of our, of our family, our church family, our family of the heart, that, that, that can identify with this. Probably more so with the tax gatherers and the sinners than being likened unto a Pharisee. But here's how it goes. All the tax gatherers and the sinners were coming near him to listen to him. As we've mentioned before, you pick out your personal, most morally despicable lifestyle or that which is to you the most morally despicable profession, you take that name, your name for whatever that would be, and you put that in the place of tax gatherers and sinners in Luke chapter 15, verse 1, and you'll get the sense of what this is about. The tax gatherers were considered the scum of the moral earth. They were considered liars. They were considered cheats. They were considered traitors because they were Jewish men working for the Roman occupying force, collecting from their countrymen Roman taxes to go to Rome, not stay and build, build uh, streets and facilities there in, in Israel, but to go to Rome, to fatten Rome. There were limits as to what the Roman government required the tax gatherers to collect. That was unknown to the population, to the Jewish population, so whatever they could pad it with became the tax gatherers' personal property. And they were filthy rich. They lived lavishly. They lived like small-time kings. And the people around them hated them because, they, because of what they were doing. Stealing, cheating, lying, traitors. But for some reason or other, that group of morally despicable, depraved deplorables found something in the most holy, pure, godly man who ever walked the face of the earth that they wanted to be near him and listen to him. Some way or another in Jesus, being pure did not also convey condemning others. 
being holy somehow was registering with folks out there as humility. That even though he was in his own league and he was in his own sphere, some way or another, common people, ordinary people, even these deplorable people, felt like they could approach him. I find this just absolutely stunning. Luke, who, was, who wrote this gospel, a, a physician of sorts in that day and would travel with, with, with Paul and Barnabas and on some of the missionary journeys, he, he records the gospel of Luke and he wrote the book of Acts. His, his attention for detail is amazing and he notices things and who was ruling where and at what time they were doing this and what part of the Asia Minor or Israel they were in. So when this fella, with an eye for detail and, and, and counting things and recording those numbers and statistics, when he says, all the tax gatherers and all the sinners, those of moral, questionable reputation, all of them were coming. All of them were coming. And they were trying to get close to Jesus and to listen to Jesus. I find that to just be a striking accounting of how Jesus presented himself. And when it would say that he came, he came to explain the Father, there was something about the way he was explaining the Father that made sinners feel like there was hope for them. Not that it was all over for them. Not that they couldn't turn to God, but that they could, in fact, turn to God. And they wouldn't be shut down, and they wouldn't be sent straight to hell, and they wouldn't be judged. They would somehow, they would somehow be met with understanding. They would somehow be met with respect. They would somehow be met with a sense of friendship. That was Jesus. Here's why he was criticized. Verse 2 both the Pharisees and the scribes began to grumble, saying, This man, Jesus, receives sinners and eats with them. Receive means, meaning that particular word, to receive as a friend, to receive kindly. And it wasn't just that he was kind to them because he had to be in, in larger settings, but he would even choose to go into their houses, sit at their tables, eat off of their plates, spend evenings with them. And the Pharisees, who prided themselves in being holy and pure and blameless as far as the law goes, and because of their righteous way of living, they thought that that was uh, without question how God would be pleased with them. It just didn't compute. How could somebody holy... Be, being, be, be rubbing shoulders with and having a friendship with these that are so morally destitute. How can it be? It's because, it's because their view, the Pharisees' view of the Father was incomplete. They didn't have the full picture. And so Jesus came to bring the rest of the story, to give them the picture of the Father's heart. And so in that mixed group that day, you got the morally despicables 
And you got the ones who prided themselves in doing everything right and knowing the Bible and being religious and being proper and being right with God. Those two groups in the house, Jesus addresses the mixed crowd. We mentioned last week the first story. He told them this parable, and it was a story of the hundred sheep. What man among you, if he has a hundred sheep, has lost one, doesn't one of them, doesn't leave the 99 of the open pasture and go after the one which is lost until he finds it. Now, folks, this is real important to get. Jesus made these stories up. He was not commenting on a news item that was told to him, and now he's bringing an interpretation or some insight into it. He is the screenwriter. He is the playwright. He has created the setting. He is creating the characters. He's creating the dialogue. He's creating the content in terms of the movement of each plot. And he is determined, he is creating the outcome. Why? Because he's trying to help folks know who God really is like. And he couldn't point to somebody that they could see, a Pharisee here or a high priest there, as if that one has it all right, because they were incomplete. He had to fashion something. He had to create something, and he put it in the form of story. And he put it in the form of stories that people could understand. It wasn't rocket science. It wasn't complicated. It was, it was a story or stories on the level that real people could get. And not just real good people, but real bad people could get. Shepherd, 100 sheep, one's lost. The shepherd is going to leave the 99 in a safe place. And he is going to go out and he's going to conduct a search. A search until he finds the one sheep. That's lost. That, that, that you, you apply that to who he's talking to, who's hearing him. You got 99 that might be like the Pharisees or morally pure, but then you got this one that doesn't want to hang with the rest. For whatever reason, has just decided, I'm going to go on my own. Who would hear that? Well, the tax gatherers. And the sinners were known, except for when they gathered just with each other, they were known as loners because nobody wanted to have anything to do with them. And so they lived, other than the times that they would collect just with each other, they lived in isolation. And Jesus is saying, you may have had the idea that it's just the well-behaved sheep that are the object of the Father's heart. But I'm here to tell you that it's the one who's hard-headed or whatever would be the reason that causes that one sheep to stray. That one right there is the focus of the Father's heart. And if he's got to make a choice as to who he's going to go after, he's going to leave the 99 and he's going after the one that's lost. That's his heart. That's his heart. That's his heart. That's his heart. And then he says in verse 7, I tell you in the same way, there'll be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. 
Now that word for repent, hang on to that one. It's not the word that describes Judas as he, he repented and, and, and for what he had done. He, it was a different word. He felt sorry for, for himself. He's sorry he got caught. This is the word that means to know after. It is two words, a preposition and then a verb, to know after. He who repents, rejoice with and found the sheep that was lost. I tell you, in heaven, more joy over one sinner who repents. Who repents. What does that mean? What is he saying? What is he saying out about the sheep that left? He's saying that there are some things that you only know after you've been through a set of circumstances. And that as you come through those things, you're gaining an understanding. You're learning things. And you reach a point where on the basis of what you now know, you alter your course. You change your direction. The sheep gathered up by the shepherd, but you make it a human sheep. And the human sheep realizing, I'm lost, I'm, I'm vulnerable, it's, it's dangerous out here, I could die out here, why did I ever leave? You don't know that if you're prone to wonder about the green grass on the other side of the fence. You don't know that there are coyotes on the other side of that fence too, until you jump that fence and get over there. You don't know it. But once you're there and you realize Chasing sin, chasing freedom, however you define it, but chasing something that isn't the heart of God for you, it's going to take you where you really don't want to go. It's going to cost you more than you really want to pay, and it's going to keep you longer than you really want to stay. So the shepherd comes after you, and you respond to his bringing you back because you see it now. You see it now. You see it now. You didn't know. You didn't get it before, but now you get it. He tells this other story. This is where I, I need to hurry up here because I wanna, want us to spend just a little bit of time on this son. He tells another story. He told the one about the lost coin, the woman who, in effect, had lost her wedding ring, and she turned the house upside down trying to find it. People could understand that. I'll tell you something else about this. It, it just shows that Jesus understands people. He, he's, he's God, but he became man, and he was tempted or tested in all points just like we are tempted. He understands you. He, he's not going to come at you and try to talk with you and along lines or communicate with you along lines that you can't get. This is so plain, and it's so simple. Shepherd lost, lost a sheep. A wife who lost her wedding ring. But when she finds it, it's the greatest day of her life since her wedding. She celebrates, and that's, that's the point. The father celebrates the father's heart is to find the loss, but then when you find what's lost, their celebration <laughs> breaks out because I found what was lost. That's his heart. Now we come to the son. He said, a certain man had two sons. Understand, he's creating this setting. He's creating these characters He's creating the dialogue for the purpose of conveying the father's heart. A man had two sons. Now, he could have used the word that would mean 
a biological offspring. That's one Greek word. But the one that he uses here is the same word that is used every time Jesus is referenced as the Son of God. It's huios. Huios. It, it, it carries with it the idea of a likeness of the character between the child and the father. A likeness of character. And then it also speaks of the dignity of the relationship between the child and the father. A man had two sons. They weren't stepsons. They weren't adopted sons. They were sons, but sons in this way. Sons in the sense that they bore a character resemblance to the father. And they were sons in the sense that there was a dignity about their relationship with their father. He points out two sons. There are two groups in the house. One son, one setting is the morally despicables. The other is the ones that are righteous in their own eyes because of all the stuff they hadn't done, as well as the stuff they were giving them credit for doing. Man had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the estate that falls to me. And he divided his wealth between them. Jesus created the characters. Jesus determines the dialogue. Jesus sets the setting. He divided his wealth between them, Jesus said. And not many days later, the younger son gathered everything together and went on a journey into a distant country. And there he squandered his estate with loose living. How did Jesus know that about people? How did Jesus know that there's, a track, there's an attraction about a Vegas or a New Orleans? How did he know that there could be a point in time where a younger son would just say, I've had it with this house. I understand I have some legal rights. So I want what is mine, and I want it now. I'm done with you. I'm out of here. See you later. How did Jesus know that? He knows people. He understands he understands and knows the, the pressures and the tendencies, the, the, the proneness towards certain reactions, the, the, the openness towards certain pulls. He knows people. Tempted in all points, the scripture will say, yet without sin. He understands this. He understands you. He understands me. He understands what's pulling at you this morning. He understands the sad places. He knows the hopes. He knows what we're prone to do. Verse 14, Jesus continues, Now when he had spent 
everything. A severe famine occurred in that country. And he began to be in need. And he went and attached himself, Jesus continues, building the plot, to one of the citizens of that country. And the citizen sent him into his fields to feed swine. The last place on earth that a Jewish son would want to be found. Feeding the swine of a hog farmer. And he was longing, Jesus said. He was longing to fill his stomach with the pods that the swine were eating. And no one was giving him anything. The pleasure of the far country was drying up all around him. Thing he thought he had to have. He now has, but it's failing him. No one was giving him anything. Verse 17. But when he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired men? Have more than enough bread, but I'm dying here with hunger. I get up, go to my father, and will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me as one of your hired men. Folks, in your father's loyalty to you, he knows and he understands what it's going to take to cause you and to cause me to come to the end of ourselves. Therefore, you don't see, you don't read here that the father enlisted SEAL Team 6 to go and snatch that boy from the far country and bring him back and make him stay at home. The father, out of loyalty to the son, let the son go, knowing that the far country would in time fail him and that at no point in time in that separation and in that distance would the father's loyalty toward the son fade, but he knew the boy. He knew that until the boy came to the end of himself, realized that money and stuff and so-called friends will fail you in time, that he was willing to wait. The father was willing to wait for all of the son's vain and empty hopes to dry up on him, and then he would come to himself and realize what he walked away from. Not what he was driven away from, but what he on his own walked away from. 
Now get this. You can take this part right here and make it an exposition or an exegesis of the meaning of the word to repent. To repent. To know after. Jesus will use the word repent about the sheep. He doesn't use the word, but he describes in vivid detail what repentance means. It means that the son had to learn some things, had to come to know some things that he didn't know when he left home. He didn't have that understanding of what the far country wasn't, of how how bad it would be outside of the father's covering. He didn't have that. Now he has it. Loses his friends. Nobody's giving him anything because he has no money to buy friends with. Nobody gives him anything. And he comes to himself. He knows now what he didn't appreciate then. The guys that work for my daddy have more to eat than I do. I don't deserve to go back as a son, as a huios. I don't deserve to be taken back as someone who has the dignity, a son who would have a dignified, dignity of relationship with my father, or that I bear the resemblance of his character. I I can't go back like that. But what I can go back is appealing to what I remember my father's kindness to be. That he was good to those who worked for him. He took care of those whom he was responsible for. I couldn't see my daddy's kindness before. Do I have a witness here? I couldn't see his heart before. But it's the only shot I've got. I'll go back. He wasn't forced back. He wasn't pulled back. Now, it's interesting. I don't know where the mother is in this story. There had to be one. That might have been a part of the strength that the dad had to exhibit. We're not going after him. He's going to end up broke. He's going to end up in the middle of nowhere. We're not sending him a dime. He's got to learn this. He's got to hit the wall before he'll ever come to himself and come back. Moms are great, but sometimes moms have to exercise the ability to be willing to come in under the influence of an earthly husband, an earthly father who has another side to understand what's going on with kids. They got to learn this. And we will just foster their rebellion. We'll just further the end result if we keep funding it, if we keep paying for it, if we keep bailing them out, bailing them out. And let them get caught. Let them face the music. And and again, what is repent? To know after. Some stuff that I didn't know, I didn't get. I may have heard it with the brain, but I didn't get it in my heart until I went through it. And now on the basis of what I know that I don't want to keep doing, which is feeding these sorry hogs, and now not having a friend of my name, 
I see that now, and on the basis of what I now know, I'm going home. Even if I have to just work and never be a son again, home is better than this awful place that I found myself in. Well, so he got up, verse 20. Now watch this. And you just imagine in the room that day, the Pharisees are trying to say, hmm, now where is he doing this? What's he got to go? But the despicables, they're going, oh, great. Now what's going to happen? Now what's going to happen when he goes home to the Father? What's the reaction of the Father going to be? And what Jesus told in the story, how he crafted the dialogue, how he, how he pressed this truth coming from the Father was something that was unexpected by both, I believe. Look at what it says. And he got up and he came to his Father. But while he was still a long way off. Now, this isn't Luke writing these words. This is Jesus speaking these words. How did Jesus know about something a long way off? How did he know about that? How did he know what that feels like? But when the son was a long way off, his father saw him. And at about that point, everybody's out on their seat. Now what? Because you put yourself in it. Put yourself there. What is our tendency to think when we realize and God has seen me? I'm caught. God knows. Satan will use that shining moment in your life to either cause you to plunge deeper into darkness because you're convinced that he's angry, that there's judgment coming, that if you go to God, it's going to be painful and nothing, nothing will good will ever come of that. And so the enemy will meet you right there to turn you into darkness. But if we take the words of Jesus as absolute truth, that's the accurate representation of your Father's heart for you. When you found yourself at that place of having learned what you didn't know about the far country before, learned what you didn't know about your own choices before, and you're realizing in the weight of that that there is another choice you need to make, and it's not to stay where you are. What will become of you if you say, I'm going to get up? Go back to my father. What will become of you? What will become of you? Scripture says, his father saw him and felt compassion for him. Jesus' words. Jesus, what was Jesus' assignment? Jesus' assignment was to explain the father, to explain the father to explain the father. The runaway boy, consumed in selfishness and self-will, comes home. What does the father do? The first expression 
comes forth from him after he sees the boy a long way off coming home is compassion. Compassion. Not immediately anger. Not immediately, well, let's just see how low he can squirm. Compassion, to feel with compassion, to feel with. Here's what I believe is to be understood as having already happened. The father had already forgiven the son. Because one of the proofs that you've forgiven somebody, you've released them to the Lord, is that out of nowhere, from somewhere within you, the strangest emotion you could ever imagine toward that one who had hurt you so badly begins to emerge. And it's compassion. As long as you have them around the neck, as long as you keep justifying yourself by saying, they owe it to me, they owe it to me, they did this to me, they owe this to me. Compassion is not even on the table. But it's amazing. And the example, I believe, is clear here. The son was met with compassion because the father had already determined to forgive him. He knew that the day would come when the boy would come home. He, he was banking on that. He was hoping on that. His loyalty carried him in that direction. Why would he have been so free in his opening the door, the home again, and put a, put a robe on him, put that ring of identity, family identity back on him, put sandals on his feet, go kill that fat calf that we've been fattening up for something special. We're going to eat him now. If the father was still stewing, he stole from the family. Wasted it on a bunch of harlots and wasted it on false friends. And what's he done to our family name? What's he done to my name as the father? He needs to squirm. He needs to hurt. He needs to pay for it. Read it again. And let your heart rejoice. While he was still a long way off, his father saw him. Jesus is saying, I want you to know, I'm here on heaven's authority to say to you, your father sees, your father knows, your father feels with you what you been walking through. His father saw him. 
felt compassion for him and ran and embraced him. Literally fell on his neck, hugged him around the shoulders, fell on his neck, put his head on his neck and kissed him. Kissed him. But, but it's the imperfect tense. It means he kissed him. Jesus uses these words, uses this tense. He kissed him and he kissed him and he kissed him and he kissed him. It's continuous action in pastime. That's the imperfect tense used here. The father saw him coming. Why? Because the father had been looking for him. That's the image. Not going on with his life. Not slamming the doors and changing the lock. But loyal to that boy. Folks, you got to feel it. Let it be in your heart. When you and I stray, prone to wonder, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love, the old song says. But even in those places of our straying, the loyal heart of the Father. We're his son. We're his child. We belong to him. We don't belong to the junk of the world and the charlatans of the world. We belong to him. We just didn't know how much we needed him. We just didn't know how much of a blessing he'd been to our lives until we got off into the stupidness. But even there, loyal, waiting, watching. And at the first sign of coming home, Jesus said, the father saw him, the father got up and ran. Why did Jesus say it that way? Why didn't he just say, verily, verily, behold, as inasmuch as thither, thither, thunder, thunder, thunder? Why didn't he just throw a bunch of King Lane's English? Because that's not who God is. He's not, he's not a bunch of words that people can't appreciate or that are outdated. He is now. He is here. He loves you and he knows you. And there is compassion to feel with you. Remember that anytime you hear the word compassion, that's what it means. To feel with. Sad for the boy. Sorrow for what the boy had gone through. But knew it was necessary. And in a sense, the father was wise enough to see the end from the beginning. There's going to be a day. You talk about the God of hope. Now by the God of hope, fill you up with all joy and peace and believing that you may abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. That father was hoping and expect it. He may have had it in his mind all along that that fatted calf was going to be for the, for the boy when he came home. Not just some random celebration for the family. He'd already gotten the calf ready, clothes waiting, ring just the right size, sandals the right shoe size, and he's sitting on the porch waiting for that silhouette to appear in that road. Jesus was saying, that's the father's heart for his child. 
He is loyal. He is strong. And he is kind. He is kind. Can anybody say thank you, Jesus? You know, we clean up real well on Sunday morning. We clean up from what we looked like maybe 10 years ago or five years ago or 15 years ago. Some of us can look like we always have been, just walking the straight and narrow. The far country is just some figment of somebody's imagination. Don't know anything about the foreign country. But I know a bunch of you. And you all know us. We've been there. But the reason you're in this house this morning is because when you determined out of what you had come to know, when the repentance occurred and happened, it was settled in your heart, and you came back home, you were here this morning because when you returned, you were met with the compassion of the Father. So why do we think we're going to win people to Jesus by talking about all the time how mad God is about sin? Now, it's truth. The wages of sin is death, that he is holy. Repent or perish, Jesus began his ministry. But when Jesus came to settings where there were real, live, flesh and blood, bona fide reprobates in the room, what did he talk about? What did he talk about? His assumption was the way of the transgressor is hard. The assumption was whether they hear it or not, the assumption was they need to hear hope. They need to hear there's a way out through the mercy and forgiveness of God. Grace, truth were realized through Jesus. The law came through Moses. Grace and truth through Jesus. You, you can't repent until you know you're a sinner. You can't want to be saved unless there is a sense that you need to be saved from something. All of that is found in this passage. So what is our role to be? We're surrounded by ones we're burdened for, we care about, and we're just concerned that they're trashing their lives with the direction they're headed. What? Let me ask you a question. Who has the power to change a heart? Do you? No. <laughs> no, we don't. Our responsibility is not the role of changing people. Our responsibility of the, is the role of representing to people. What we determine to be the heart of the Father for them. Yes, we warn 
Yes, we say, please don't keep doing that. There's another way to live. You don't have to keep doing that, please. But when we've said that, and they don't change, does that mean we have the freedom to give up on them? Or is there somehow working within us the sense, you know, in Jesus' created story to explain the Father's heart, that daddy never quit believing. That daddy never gave up on that son. And the worst nightmare happened. The boy would go to the far country and he would not come back the same boy. He would come back different. He would have seen and heard things and experienced things None of those things were powerful enough to sever the cords of loyalty from that father's heart to that boy. May we be more like that father for those we care about and love and who are breaking our hearts or have broken our hearts. May we be more like that father by the grace of God than the Pharisees who would say, well, he deserved it. He's just getting what he had coming. Tough luck. The Father's heart. The Father's heart for you. Loyal. Strong. And kind. He is. Lord, thank you, Lord Jesus, for crafting these stories so that we could better and more clearly understand our Father's heart for us. Lord, we receive your truth as best we can, but by the power of your Spirit, take this deeper. For we've just flat had wrong conclusions about who you are. Would you please use this passage and so many like it to correct our thinking because Lord if we're to love you with all our hearts then you we need for you to be in the sense that we can understand it lovable we read these stories and this is a God we could love with all our hearts mind soul and strength you open our eyes more and more and more and more and more, Lord Jesus, to who you, to who the Father truly is. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Amen.